Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. We've got two great interviews this week. In the second, I sit down with Amy Kennedy, who is running for the House of Representatives in New Jersey on July 7th. But first, I've got to have a conversation about a topic many of us probably haven't considered. I've never been on a farm before. I don't know what the process of farming looks like. But during coronavirus, I learned more than ever about how and where our food comes from and why it matters, about how disruptive the supply chains can put people in danger, and about black farmers. Here's my chat with Angie and June Provo about the issues facing black farmers in America now. Angie and June, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's an honor. It's an honor to talk with you. Definitely. I'm always excited to have people on who do things that I know legitimately nothing about, and I know nothing about actual farming. Uh, I do have Animal Crossing, <laughs> and that is not farming. So uh, can you talk about how you got to farming and what do you do? Can you help us just understand what do you do? I'm actually a fourth-generation sugarcane farmer from New Iberia, Louisiana. I worked side-by-side side with my dad and my brothers. It was, you know, a pretty large farm. And we were once to operate of close to a 5,000-acre farm, together with family-owned 300 acres of land. But I lost the farm through fraud and discrimination. But out of all of that, my goal was to encourage the next generation of farmers and definitely stop the depletion of current Black farmers in business. Because you know, as Black farmers, we are less than 2% of farmers. That is disheartening to hear that. In 15, 20 years, if we stay on this rate, we'll no longer have any Black farmers left. And they don't make any new land. So if we stay on this pace, we're actually going to be depleted completely. And just to let you know, like farming is everything to me. I mean, to work side by side with your dad and your brothers, you know, to have a family operation, it meant the world to me. I mean, this farming is everything. I don't have any hobbies, no fishing, no camping. Everything was the farm. I mean, I love the farm by all means. I love everything about it. My name is Angela Provost. I'm June's wife. And I'm also a multi-generational farmer. We both have a long history of agriculture in our blood, in our DNA. Uh, and we like to say that we're like fourth generation farm owners because our ancestors were farming prior to the days of enslavement. We actually taught Europeans how to farm subtropical crops. And it is, as June said, very disheartening to see the depletion of black farmers in the U.S., knowing how we built this country and this economy. And our goal is just to inform the public and make people aware of the real systematic, systemic oppression that's embedded in the agriculture industry and how land theft and how land ownership are tied to everything that we see in the news today. As June also said, we are very passionate about cultivating the land. And we're just honored to be able to share our story and our experience. When you talk about land theft, what does that mean? Like, help us understand. And can you also tell me what is, I'm embarrassed to say that I need to Google sugarcane because I have no clue what sugarcane looks like. But what is sugarcane farming like? Sugarcane farming is such a beautiful experience. Uh, To be connected to the land and to farm sugarcane crops, it certainly connects you to your past and to the earth. It makes you feel a sort of sense of purpose. Sugarcane stalks are one of the most elegant, beautiful crops to grow. It's a tall, leafy grass, right? And it just sways in the wind on a beautiful day. And it's also the number one lobby crop in the U.S. Most often in the news, you'll hear about corn and soybean commodities and pricing and whatnot. But sugarcane is actually the number one crop, and it has been for centuries. It's the justification, along with tobacco and cotton, for all those big white plantation homes that you see along the rivers and the bayous. It is the reason for a lot of the brutality that we experience. But with all of that said, 
We know that our tie to the plant itself, sugarcane itself, are directly tied to our history as Black and Brown people. And we're just set to reclaim that. And along with reclaiming our rights to farm subtropical crops, we also reclaim our rights for ownership and for civil rights, but like what I actually like to call them are human rights for us as Black farmers. And talking about land theft, just in this area here, since the early 90s, there have been 60 African-American families that have went out of business. Do you know how much generational wealth that is lost in that? I mean, you're talking about family. So right now, I should be in a position to train the next generation, train my nephews. They will never get to experience that. So when you're talking about 60 farm families, that's close to 40,000 acres that was being formed by black farmers just in this area here alone. I mean, right now in Louisiana, there are over 500 farmers. There are only four black farm families left. And if we keep going this way right here, probably in the next two years, there won't be any left. And again, it's so disheartening when you see us as generational farmers forced out of business, but you see a young white kid that doesn't know anything about farming, but all of a sudden he just pops up with a thousand acres of sugarcane. There's a problem there. There's something happening there. Right now, there's sugarcane across the street from our home where we're living at now, which is my mom's home. You know how hard that is when you wake up and you walk out of the house every morning and, and you see sugarcane. Like if we drive to New Orleans, you see thousands and thousands of acres of sugarcane. I get quiet for probably an hour of the ride because I just zone out just wondering why, why us as black farmers couldn't continue farming that property. It's no reason in the world why we shouldn't still be farming. I'm so passionate about farming and to see that like thousands of acres and none of us are on that property. That is hard. That is something that's so hard to deal with. And, you know, June speaks to it as a, an extremely personal experience. But as a collective, as Black farmers, we know that our founders, our so-called founding fathers, knew that land ownership and the ability to feed yourself or your community was access to power, right? And that access to power created the ability to make the laws that govern our society. As Black farmers, we have faced an issue of violence and oppression that has never rightfully been addressed. And to talk about our experience is to talk about our whole experience as a Black community, right? So first, we're pushed from our land, and then we're forced to move to a major metroplex for better opportunities. But then we're redlined into certain districts where we're over-policed or where our voting rights are discarded or just our ability to live peacefully is destroyed. Everything can go back to land ownership and land theft. And we've greatly experienced a good deal of retaliation, June and I have, just by vocalizing those things and telling our story. We've had the slave patrol park in front of our house for no good reason, only other than to intimidate us. We've had equipment vandalized. We've had all of these things and they've always escalated either when June or myself, our farm would grow or we would speak up about our experience of being discriminated against and trying to blow the whistle on what we saw what was happening, either to us by the USDA, by lending institutions, or sugar mills or refineries in our area. It's been a real hurdle to cross, but I have to say that the healing process for us has come in making people aware of what's going on. Because honestly, we're just trying to make it to the age of 70. Right now, we're just trying to live to see another day, and we're trying to hopefully make people aware of what's going on and let people know of the action items that they can do to help stop the depletion of Black farmers, to encourage land ownership in our community and get some philanthropic support so that we don't have such a dependency on the USDA or lending institutions that may be discriminating against us. Now I have a couple of questions. One is you talked about the USDA. I have no clue what their role is 
with like actual farmers? So like, what do, do they inspect farms? Do they like, what does that mean? And then I always want to ask a farmer, you know, I, I read these stories about like, we're overproducing food. So farmers are getting paid not to produce food. And I, I just never really understood that. So I thought I'd ask. Yeah, so that also goes back to one of our points as well. So you'll hear farmers getting, they call it preventative planning payments, or in what you saw with the latest bailout of large-scale farmers and the Trump administration, um, it's almost like the best insurance policy on anything that you can have. And there's always that hypocrisy with us within the U.S. government. So we want to talk about farmers who are getting checks to not plant a crop, but we also are withholding SNAP benefits from people who actually need them. But that all goes back to the systematic problem that we've never addressed and how chattel slavery has affected every single law that we have on the books today. And certainly agriculture has a great deal to do with that. And honestly, DeRay, the USDA is part of everything that you touch or experience. We don't really realize that. They're sort of like the Justice Department. Mostly everything that's manufactured, prepared, not just food, but it's all sorts of things that are touched through the USDA. Those are really things that we as a public need to be aware of, of those laws, those policies and procedures that govern that particular department because it's just as crucial as the Justice Department in the United States of America. And I would like to add, too, when, when I know a lot of people seen in the news where farmers were destroying perfectly good crops, that devastated us to see that in the news. I mean, it should have been a way, and it could have been a way to donate that food to food banks. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of red tape involved in that, but to see them damaging perfectly good crops, I mean, that was devastating. And another thing, too, when we're talking about those payments to the farmers, what that is is just this administration is is buying votes. Because if he messed up with the trade deal with the China, I mean, he just magically pulled up billions of dollars and just gave to the farmers. That is so unnecessary. So unnecessary. At the same time, pulling back SNAP benefits. And so those things are the great hypocrisy of America. And the red tape. It's a part of that hypocrisy that we see within the government. And it's just so important and imperative that people become educated and aware of laws and procedures that govern the USDA. And in doing that, become aware of the Commodity Credit Corporation as well. Um, And that is the USDA's lending institution. So those things are very imperative for us to increase our awareness of what's going on there. Why should non-farmers care about what's happening with Black farmers? So if you think about it in this way, if there are no Black farmers, how do we know we are getting the best food sources for our communities and food access for our communities, right? So with the depletion of Black farmers, it also set up a food apartheid system. There's a great farmer in the Northeast by the name of Karen Washington who has coined that phrase, and that's exactly what it is. But you cannot talk about food apartheid without talking about the depletion of Black farmers. And all of our laws are governed by our ability to access and own land. That's the reason why you see so many, many politicians going to the state of Iowa, Illinois, Michigan, to campaign, and yet you don't see them down here in the South, right? It's not just because they think they have the South sewed up. It's because you have a large predominant of white landowners in the Midwest. And everything from the founding of our country, from the Head Right Act, to the Morrell Act, to the Civil Rights Act, all stems around land ownership. There are certain things that are down the ballot issues that we cannot vote for unless we own land or have an operating farm number. There's a USDA county committeeman living here in Louisiana who is a U.S. government representative, yet he's also supposed to be representing us. This is an example. People cannot vote for his position unless they own land. You cannot run for his position unless you own land. And he has actually gone out there and been responsible for taking quite a few hundred acres from our farm. 
And so those things are real issues that affect us on a daily basis. So it's not only that here in rural America, we're being affected by the depletion of Black farmers. It's not just within Black rural communities, but urban communities as well are feeling the effect. And right now, you're currently seeing a lot of small urban farms that are popping up in cities like Houston, D.C., New York, all of that. But they also struggle, too, because some of those lands are rented. And they're living off a string and a prayer to operate their farm because they don't own it. But they're supplying a great deal of fresh produce and fresh goods for their community. So what happens to them if that rent is taken or if that landowner or landlord decides, well, hey, we're going to turn this into a parking lot and we're going to close down your farm? It's a similar situation, but on a larger scale here in rural U.S. And so we ask people, please take time, learn about what's going on, be very aware of where your food comes from, how it's grown, and what type of society you want to live in, and how you treat yourself. Those are things that we think are very important on the scale of why Black farmers are important. And not only that, but Black farmers are important, the story of us are so important because it talks about Black business ownership. And Black business ownership is on the decline now. And when we're talking about our experience as Black farmers, it's not consumer lending laws that affect us. It's commercial lending. And those things are not addressed by our politicians. They're not addressed fully by our activists. And we need those issues to be addressed. So when you're talking about the small Black business owner, you are talking about the Black farmer and our needs and the needs of our community and your needs as well. So that is the importance of who we are and why we share our message. Now, what about COVID? Did COVID impact the farming industry in any way or were our farms sort of remote enough that uh, social distancing was sort of a norm already? So COVID has affected small-scale farmers like ourselves because we have had to delay some planting uh, until we could secure funding and issues like that. But I, I do have to say that COVID has greatly affected the farm worker on large-scale farms. These Black and brown people who are working on these large-scale farms, mostly owned by white Americans, they do not have the ability or the privilege to socially distance themselves, yet they're still feeding us. So every time you go to the grocery store, pick up a bag of lettuce or a pack of strawberries, just remember those people. For us, we're on a much smaller scale. So it's just June and myself who work on our farm right now. And our biggest issue has been attempting to secure funding to continue our operation and our mission and goals especially with the COVID, we see how important food is and we're always going to need to eat. So we're always going to need farmers. And then now, especially you see these fast food places are donating to this administration. We need healthy food in our community. So I think this is the time for a lot of people to try to grow their own food if possible, because we see how important it is, you know, right now. Yes, to step up and speak out and start growing your own food. Exactly. So, you know, we think about what it means to go from a million farmers to under 40,000. Both what caused the shift? And you talked about this a little bit, but I'd be really interested to know where are those farmers clustered? Is this a Louisiana thing or is this a, is it Georgia? Is it, I don't know, like, what are there clusters of black farmers or is it really just like spread out across the country? It's spread out across the country. And I can tell you that the major issues that have caused us to experience a loss in agricultural producers would be that number one thing is we're underfunded and poorly serviced. So we can go into a lending agency or the USDA and either we're turned away or we're given the runaround where it takes months for our applications to be processed and approved or denied and over collateralization. So when we're in financial trouble, it's not just our crops that are seized. Oftentimes it's our homes, it is our vehicles, all these things that are tied 
to what essentially should just be your farm loan tied to your crop and your farm equipment. There's also that over supervision. And there's literally a thing with the USDA called a supervised bank account, where the USDA or these lending institutions are telling you what to, how to spend your money. And so those issues have just totally decimated us. And what also happens in the ag industry is those of us that are left, large white-scale farmers or organizations like to tokenize us, driving a wedge in our community, making those of us who were forced out feel extremely incompetent. And those who are still remaining, it puts them under such pressure to keep going and to stay with that status quo. And when we do speak out, again, that violence and reprisal that happens to us, because you have to ask your question, why have we as Black farmers received so much reprisal if farming is not such an essential occupation? Why land ownership is not an essential part of building equity for yourself or your community? Because if that were the case, then no one would really care or the institutions that regulate us would really care about us going out or speaking up. But whenever we do, we face a lot of violence and oppression. And I can tell you that once this podcast is aired, June and I are going to have to watch our surroundings very much. We do not go to the grocery store by ourselves. We do not go outside by ourselves. So when we're gardening or farming, we're together. Our families know where we are. And so these things are so important to the aspect of why things have occurred the way that they have. It centers around the depletion of intergenerational wealth for us as Black Americans. And it all starts with the land. And so if we can galvanize people to take on the mission of some sort of reparations for us and have it be centered around human rights and land ownership, I think we'd be in a better position. You know, you see videos of, of white growers. It's not just Louisiana. It's all across the United States. But you, you see these white growers, these old, you know, grandfathers that's 90 some odd years old saying, well, I'll, I'll never retire. We don't retire. They're just still riding the truck and riding the headlands, just looking at, you know, at all the, the tractors moving in the field. Our fathers, they didn't get a chance to live that old because the stress, when she's talking about underfunded, these white growers, farming is not easy. I'll, I'll say that much. But the majority of, of, of the stress should be if, worrying if you're going to catch the right rain or if you're going to catch a hurricane or a drought. But as black farmers, we always had to worry about if we're going to get a crop loan. Is it going to be funded enough? When is the timing of that crop loan? That takes a toll on a person. That's why you see like all around here, the sugarcane farmers, including my dad, they all passed away at a young age because the stress is just is unbearable. And you see these white growers not having a worry in the world. That's hard to take. What they try to do is just put you in a situation to where you, like she said, like Angie said, you have to leave, go to a bigger city. But we decided to fight because we didn't have any kids. We don't have any children. So we went weak sometimes. We couldn't even buy a loaf of bread. I mean, we actually lost our home in foreclosure in 2018. And the hardest part about that, I build up right behind my parents in my parents' backyard so I can take care of my parents when they get older. Now that home is lost and now I have people coming down the driveway because they have a for sale sign on my home. You know how hard that is when you wake up in the morning and the first thing you see is our home? And, and to top it off, sometimes I have to call the parish to cut the grass because the, the grass sometimes grows to two feet tall. And when they do send somebody to cut you know, the, the grass is somebody coming in a truck with rebel flags all over. So, you know, it's, it's just like they're just driving a wedge and you're just turning it. I mean, that's things that we have to live with daily, every day. Boom. Um, can you talk about, like, how can people support you? So there are going to be people who listen and they're like, we are on board. How do we support Black farmers? Yeah, so there are action items that people can do. The main issue with us as Black farmers is that we need funding and support, and we need to decrease our dependency from the USDA. We need people to donate, to fund, to offer philanthropic and mission-driven investor support. 
We want people to ally with us so that we can stay on our land, produce our crops, contribute to society, to our communities in a positive way. And a big thing about that is that we also need you. So I'm a big proponent of for us, by us. And so I really encourage people to contact the Congressional Black Caucus. Contact your nearest member and ask them to address these policies to increase policy initiatives that address the plight of Black farmers and Black landowners. Such things like statute of limitation laws or punitive damages for ECOA violations. There are so many myriad of things that we can address like, again, more restrictions on commodity credit corporations and commercial lending. These things greatly affect us as small Black business owners. And in order for us to build wealth for our communities, we need public support. June and I started a GoFundMe campaign in 2017, I believe, and we've done it in increments. So we raise the amount to be donated I would say every three months, but we do that in increments as money is needed for our farm and to move on. But I say that we're not the only farmers who need that type of source of funding or donations. There are a whole host of us out there that need that sort of support. And we need celebrities. We need people with a platform to speak up and uh, sort of galvanize around us. Those are the things that people can do, along with educating yourself about the history of Black farmers and Black-owned land and our contributions to society. Those things are very important to assisting us in our fight. Losing our home and then not having a farm anymore, that was some dark times. I mean, I contemplated suicide because I felt like I had nothing else to give. I mean, they, they took everything from me. I mean, luckily, you know, people reached out from all over the United States and gave me that support that I needed to keep going and to keep fighting. Much as they'll try to shut us up and keep us quiet, we refuse to do that. We're going to fight until we can't fight anymore. I mean, and it wasn't easy saying that at the beginning. Like I said, I was in dark, dark times. And another thing I just, you know, especially black men, if you need to talk to someone, do it. I was hesitant to reach out. But that was the best thing I could do is, is talk about it, even though it, it's so hard to do at first. Just talk to someone if you can. And just the support from the public means the world to us. That is why we are still fighting today, and that's why we will continue fighting. And the public support, actually, things like that have allowed us to create Provost Farm. Although June had a 5,000-acre farm, I was farming 500 acres, and that was stolen from us. It was the public support that allowed us to merge together to create Provost Farm and start doing a small percentage of vegetables and patches of sugar cane that are directly grown for other minority-owned businesses. So it is the public support that helps us move through this and sort of regain some sense of ourselves and our family's legacy and who we are. That is stuff that cannot be replaced. So we ask everyone to buy two questions. Uh, the first is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years uh, that stuck with you? There was a chancellor at Southern University that told us to document, document, document. And to constantly, although we face some sense of abandonment by our political leaders, is to continue to push for policy change and initiatives that address systemic racism within the government institutions that regulate us. So, yeah. We spoke at a conference in North Carolina a few years ago. Um, I'm going to say 2017. After we spoke, um, they gave us a standing ovation, but I remember a farmer who was about 70, in his mid to late 70s, and he came over to me crying, and he told me, don't stop fighting. He said, your voice is something we need. He said, don't stop fighting. So I think at that moment, it, it made me realize maybe we're in this situation for a reason. I mean, it's odd to say that, but I think that gave us the courage to, to keep fighting. No matter how hard things get, just keep fighting. I mean, we're, we're helping somebody along the way. 
And then uh, how do you, what do you say to people who are losing hope in moments like this? People who have done everything they were told to do. They emailed, they called, they stood in the street, they petitioned, and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? We have to understand that we are in the pursuit of change, right? And change doesn't come overnight. And the more that we continue to protest, to vocalize our opinions, to vocalize the rights that we need, as Black Americans, that we have to realize that we may not see these changes in our generation, that they may come for the next generation or thereafter. But we have to continue to fight because it's not just about us. It is about our future as Black people. And we just encourage you to continue fighting, but also surround yourself with like-minded people, as June said, especially Black men. And Black women, we have to support one another positively, and we can't expect there to be one shiny person in the bunch to speak for all of us. We have to speak for ourselves and support one another. Yes, that was well said. I mean, we might not see the change that we want in our lifetime, but we have to keep fighting. We have to keep fighting for that change. Try to be positive and say it's going to come. I know it's hard like it is sometimes. And on the farming side of it, I had one young male ask me, well, why would I want to get informed with all the trouble you went through? And that was a, a great question, but I told him we have to make a change down the road. You, you have to be the one to, to make that change. I'm, I'm just trying to steer you in the right direction and tell you what I've been through. But just to let you know that farming and agriculture is going to be needed 50, 100 years down the road. So we have to mobilize it and do what we can. Exactly. Where can people go to uh, stay up to date with what you're doing? We're on social media. I'm Angela Provost Farms, and June is June Raising Cane. We also have a website, www.provostfarmllc.com, and we also have a GoFundMe. It's Provost Farm Cultivate Equity, and we are constantly posting. We are constantly speaking up, doing panel discussions, and you can really keep abreast of what we're doing via social media and through outlets like this. And so we're just very honored to share our story. Mm-hmm. Boomer, well, thanks so much for coming down Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much, DeRay. It was an honor, DeRay. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor Meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from 
work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Today's bonus interview is with Amy Kennedy, a member of the Kennedy political dynasty. She's running to represent New Jersey's 2nd Congressional District. That election occurs on July 7th, and here's our chat about why she's running against a former Democrat. Let's go. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Oh, I'm so glad to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, let's talk about your race and and how you sort of get to a point where you decide you're going to run for Congress. What, What led you there? I had not anticipated running for Congress, not this year, not at this point in my life. I have a young family. I have five children, ages 12 and under, so our youngest is just about to turn two. And I was watching along with the rest of my community when Jeff Andrew switched parties and pledged his undying support to Donald Trump. And this came after years of watching this administration tear this country apart and to see my own representatives switch parties and co-sign to that type of rhetoric really uh, motivated me and made me decide this is the moment. And I could not wait. I really wanted to be able to answer my kids when they asked me, why didn't you speak out against this? Now, your district is in New Jersey. What are the issues that are important to the people that you represent? And I'm always interested, because you were a former teacher, can you talk about like how teaching might have informed uh, what you think this work might be or, or what your goals might be? So I live just outside of Atlantic City. I grew up in this area. Uh, my family's been here for four generations. And through that time, they had businesses in Atlantic City, a photography shop and a bakery. And then both my parents were school teachers and I was a public school teacher here as well. And I've watched as families have moved out of the area and really struggled. The children in my classroom, I could see that they were coming to school and they were struggling. And it was not just the economy in this area, but their mental health as well was impacted by the economic downturn. We had expected the casino industry to be able to buoy this part of our state, and it wasn't able to hold up everyone's families in the way that we had hoped, especially after Hurricane Sandy. And as a middle school teacher, I saw not just the family struggling, but now the students with anxiety and stress and depression. And so when I left the classroom, mental health became my focus. My husband has worked in the mental health space for quite a long time, including his time in Congress, where he was the author of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. 
that led me to a place where I could understand not just his background, but that merged with mine as a school teacher that kids really need practices in the classroom for prevention and early intervention. And also supports. If they have a more serious mental illness, we need to have supports in school and make school a place where you can seek out those resources without stigma. And I know that will change their trajectory because we see students presenting with a lot of different challenges and they come into school with trauma. And if we don't address that early, they're not able to reach the potential that we hope for them. You've worked at the Kennedy Forum as the education director. Can you talk about like what is that work and what have you learned from that work that you can sort of transition into Congress? My work at the Kennedy Forum was really about how can we bring that mental health perspective into schools. And it starts not just once we see a student that is showing signs of serious mental illness, but how can we start early? And we know that begins with things from nurse-family partnerships to universal pre-K and social-emotional learning in the classroom. And then if students need that Tier 2 and Tier 3 supports in schools, schools look like a community school where those resources are available right on the campus. And that requires not just a guidance counselor per building, but really a whole change in the culture of what we understand student success to be. And knowing that we want well-being to be the goal, how are we enhancing that? How are we helping students to deal with flexibility and coping skills and with problem solving and working together and dealing with trauma and all of those things that really make us successful adults? Because when I taught in the classroom, I would see students that came in and It didn't matter how engaging my lesson might be about history, which is what I taught. I could be talking about ancient Greece. I could be talking about Abraham Lincoln. But if they were struggling with stressors from home, from trauma that they'd experienced, whether it was being concerned about a parent with a substance use disorder or whether it was a family member who's sick, they really can't focus on the test and the homework and the assignments that I'm giving in class. Those things don't matter if we can't focus on just the survival, the basic needs that we have. And so that really, I think, informs my work as I turn to a political lens and how we can be supporting families and supporting children first and making sure that they have what they need to be successful. We can talk a whole lot about how we retroactively help people, how we go back and support them with supportive housing and how we can have supportive employment. But we also need to make sure that we're giving kids their best chance from the very beginning. And so I'll look to do all those things because mental health is a lifelong challenge. It's something that doesn't just impact people for a short period of time. We know that many times, as the Kennedy Forum points out, Kennedy Forum has really tried to address insurance coverage of mental illness and mental health and conditions like substance use disorder, where oftentimes there's a a limit on the amount of treatment. We know that these things shouldn't be limited, that just like any health care, it's a lifelong condition and it needs to be treated as such. And we need to do all things that we can to help us live our healthiest life. Now, what about COVID? How do you think that this moment will impact the way that education is handled across the country in New Jersey and your district? Like, what do you think the long lasting implications of this might be? I think we're going to see a real challenge, not just in how we redesign healthcare to make sure that we are talking about an expansion of healthcare that brings with it an understanding now that our neighbor's health is going to impact our health, that we're all vulnerable if our neighbor is vulnerable, if our coworker is vulnerable, if there is someone else in our community that does not have access to healthcare, that will impact our health. Not just that, but we're going to see a dramatic worsening of economic inequities in our country. And we've seen a dramatic increase in mental health concerns in our country. And we've seen brought to light the challenges that students face because of coronavirus and how access to technology and internet services and support at home 
are going to impact their learning. So I think there's going to be a lot that comes out of this that we're going to need to tackle, and it will not be a one-time stimulus check. It's not going to be relief that is a short-term boost to the economy to get the stock market going again. This is highlighting a real concern that has existed for years, and we have now been shown right under a bright light what needs to happen. And it's about getting people in office that are going to make that happen and choose not to look away and sweep this back under the rug. It's been exposed. How can we take on this challenge? Now, what about people in New Jersey in a moment like this who are below the poverty line, who are in communities that have been traditionally under-resourced? What do we do for people like that? Because we know that the government loans that were administered in the first round, at least, like didn't really go to people uh, in the most impoverished communities. And we know that people are still struggling to meet basic needs around food. We know a lot of people are still struggling around rent. What can we do? Or do you think we're sort of just stuck in this moment? No, I think that we have to act. I think when we give up hope, then we're really lost. We know that in a community like my own, Atlantic City is incredibly diverse, has a lot of economic inequality and systematic racism. It's already experienced some of the worst health outcomes in the state. And we have to make sure that we can provide immediate help to families and workers and small businesses. And Direct payments, a one-time $1,200 check isn't enough, but the HEROES Act that was introduced is a good start. There's far more that we can do to protect low-income families during the pandemic. We need to be able to make sure that we are continuing to allow people housing during this time, that they aren't at risk of losing their home because they can't afford rent right now that we're providing funding to states so that they can continue to pay first responders, teachers, healthcare workers, and those on the front lines, that we're making the kinds of investments and protections that should be in any relief package. But I also think that we need to immediately put forward a more comprehensive healthcare plan and fight for universal access to affordable, high-quality care because We've seen that people without that care are most at risk and are being hit the hardest by this virus. We also need to make sure that there is worker safety and access to good paying jobs, a healthy workplace. We're seeing everybody talking about going back and what that'll look like during reopening. And I'm really worried, frankly, about who's going to have to go back first. And those people that had to work through this time, we know that the people that have been able to stay home are the lucky few. And those that have to go back have a right to a safe, healthy workplace. And so we've released a Workers' Bill of Rights on our website, amykennedyforcongress.com. We've put that out there. We are working on a healthcare plan to talk about this. We need to make sure there's a comprehensive mental health and addiction treatment plan because low-income families are going to need access to this care now more than ever. And we've seen telehealth expanded during this time. So I think there's been some movement that we want to see, but we have to make sure that continues and that as we start to reopen, they don't start to roll back the moves that we've made to support people at this time. So how is Representative uh, Jeff Andrew doing in Congress? Like besides defecting, which seems like sort of a wild thing, uh, what should we know about your opponent? And is it weird to run against somebody who I guess was a Democrat recently? It's so weird. Yes. We had supported Jeff and did not expect this to happen, although he had always been leaning toward the conservative votes and hadn't taken a lot of the hard votes And yet, once he switched, it was a total switch. So he went from being a Democrat to right after, you know, appearing on Fox News and praising their work. And since that time has really come out strongly uh, in support of Donald Trump, including bringing a rally to this district. One of the Trump rallies was held here in Wildwood in the early part of this winter. 
And so we were really frustrated. I think a lot of South Jersey was frustrated to see that presence here because so much of this state doesn't accept that rhetoric. And we were fortunate to have Martin Luther King III join us that day and be able to push back and say, this isn't what we're about as a nation. This is the time to speak out against this kind of hate and injustice. This is when we need to speak up for social justice. This is when we need to speak up for each other as we continue to be turned against one another. And we're seeing it all over this country, the rise in racism, the rise in hate crimes. And it's so concerning to me. And I think it is to most Americans that don't buy into this kind of let's put money over people. There we go. You know, I also wanted to talk to you about what we do about the racial inequities in the socioeconomic inequities once this is all over. So it's one thing to talk about, like, how do we help people in the crisis and in the midst of the crisis? And and that makes sense. What happens, though, when COVID isn't the crisis, but we go back to the same inequity and inequality that existed before COVID happened? What can we do about those things? We've had issues in our part of the state for quite a long time, a much higher rate of infant mortality in our area, a disproportionate number of COVID cases, as you talked about, that's one part, but it's really due to inequitable access to treatment. And what are we going to do to address that in a greater way? And I think a lot of that starts from fixing politics, one, in New Jersey and in Washington that are broken to make sure that people have greater representation. It was a big victory this week here in Atlantic City where there was a challenge to our democracy and Atlantic City voted on a measure earlier this week to change the city's form of government. And we were able to vote no and say that was not going to happen because It was really a matter of maintaining people's voice, and there was going to be an issue of having somebody come in and be a city manager that was not elected. And we have to be really wary as we move forward, and we're looking at how vote-by-mail is being adopted in some states but not in others. Is early voting being allowed? How are we making sure that We're working for the families to make sure that they have their voices heard. And I think that's really through expanding voting access. Once we do that and people are able to make their voices heard and have that political will that's felt in the system, we can start to see those changes. And those changes should look like education equity. So that funding for schools in all areas looks equitable. It should be that we have high-paying jobs that are available, that we're raising the minimum wage so that people are able to afford decent housing. It should look like high-quality health care throughout the state, that we have good quality water throughout the state, throughout the country. These are the kinds of things that people deserve, but only happen when the political will is exercised. And so I believe that we can make it happen and that right now during this virus, as we're expanding and looking at how voting can happen throughout the country, it's a good time to make sure that every vote is counted. And you were just endorsed by In Citizens United. Is that a cornerstone of your campaign? And for people who don't know what Citizens United is and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, can you just do like a a quick sort of where you stand on it? Oh, yeah, I would love to tell you about In Citizens United's endorsement was really a, a big deal for me. It was a goal of mine to take on the way big money plays a part in our politics in Washington. So having the support of End Citizens United simply means that I have made the pledge not to accept corporate PAC money, that I believe we need to get dark money out of politics, that until we see those things happen, we can't expect to see changes in our gun legislation, for example, and our environment, because 
when we have corporations that are funding our politicians, it's very difficult to get the votes that we need to have happen to make common sense reforms in those areas. So by signing this pledge not to take corporate PAC money, it means that I'm speaking for the people of my district rather than for those corporate interests. I think that is a pledge that is going to be more important now than ever when we have an administration that is always on the side of big corporations. What are some of the things you hope to change at the structural level if you're elected? Like, if you had to sort of help the people in your district understand things that we can change only at the congressional level, what would those things be? At the congressional level, I'd really like to see changes made in how we're, one, looking at our funding for education, our funding for politics, how are we raising money, how are politicians getting into their position, who is funding those candidates, uh, so that we're able to put forth the best representation. I think looking at how we are protecting the workers' rights is going to be a big piece of that for me in Washington, because we'll continue to see our Social Security, Medicare, and all of those services that people have contributed to and worked for chipped away at. And on one hand, we're seeing some of the biggest investments into this plan that we've ever seen, but we know that there'll be a pushback soon where they'll start to look for savings. And I think that's why right now, more than ever, we're going to need strong representation in Congress because it's all of those services that will be first targeted and it'll be the high quality education that your kids depend on. It'll be the health care that people who are vulnerable need. It will be the social security that seniors rely on. And all of those things that help make us stable in this country and that we need to have peace of mind. So when we talk about anxiety and stress on the rise, we know so many people are going to be at risk of losing their homes, that they're at risk of losing their jobs, that even if they have a job, are they making enough to cover those bills? And those are the things in Congress that you need someone pushing forward. And so we've put all of those policies online. We're hoping that we can drive this conversation forward, not just in those areas, but also in the environment. Being at the Jersey Shore, it's evident that we need to act on this quickly. And that's the kind of policies that also are impacting not just the shore, but farmlands in this area. And throughout the country, we're seeing greater and greater devastation from flooding and extreme weather. And so, you know, there's so many areas that we really could talk about when it comes to policy. But I think what we really need is someone who's there to lift up and amplify the voices that haven't been heard. The people in this community who have been left behind, who have not been able to have a champion for them. And that's what I'd like to do. And is there anything that we can do to make sure that the elections in November happen or that they're honest? You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism around Trump that he might sabotage the election or try to postpone it, even though he doesn't necessarily have the power to do it. But we've seen him do things that we've never seen a president do. What can we do about that? I think you're right to be concerned. This president and this administration leave us really at risk of interference in our elections. I think that we need to make sure that we are protecting those places where they have already expanded voting rights and make sure that we're pushing for that to happen in other places. For example, in our state of New Jersey, we are looking at even just the primary election, which is July 7th. How will that be done in a way that gives people the greatest access We know that a lot of voters will be afraid to go to the polling place right now. And we can't expect that it won't be the case in November as well, that this will be cleared up by then. 
So making sure that there's really a system in place that gives people peace of mind, that makes sure that every eligible voter has the opportunity in a safe, easy, and trustworthy way of getting that vote to count is going to be of the utmost importance for our democracy. Because if we don't get this right, then nothing else is going to come after this. We won't see any positive changes moving forward. So for me, I think that the focus has to be on election reform, that we need to be making sure that we've got the systems for early voting for streamlined registration. You know, if people are wanting to register, why are we having them jump through hoops just even to be registered voters? We need to make sure that that process is simple and that once engagement's up, we can make the changes happen that we need to see in this country. There are two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what do you say to people who are losing hope in a moment like this? People who have done everything that they were told to do. They went to the meetings, they stood in the street, they emailed, they testified, they did all the things, and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? I understand that feeling, and I only have to look at my kids. I mentioned to you that I have five children, and I can say that gives me hope. I know that there is a growing movement of people feeling a call to service, and that gives me hope. We're looking at ways that we can connect. If we don't see that leadership from the top, then it's going to come from the grassroots, and it's going to come from helping our neighbors, and that those small changes and those small actions all make a difference. And so that frustration that so many people, including myself in this country, are feeling right now is some really loud voices that have been shouting and there's still a quiet, growing group of people that are making a difference every day, despite those, you know, hate-filled voices that are, are frustrating the rest of us. And so I believe that there's hope in young people. It's with a 12-year-old watching her every day and her passion and concern for other people and for our society and for the environment. We've seen movements happening and I only have hope because I've seen that and I've been witness to how there's enough people that are called to service. And the last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I think a a guiding thing for me really has been to not always be fixed on on my own plans, but to trust that there's a bigger plan. And I'm a Catholic. I have a deep faith. And I think that's been a guiding principle for me throughout. So being able to feel like I am going to always put forth my best effort. And yet when I'm faced with a situation that I'm unsure of, that I also have faith, I think, during this period of time with the virus and knowing that we all have had to change plans and change our expectations in so many ways of what life would look like and how we're going to move forward, that that for me is reassuring. I hope that for others, you know, just being able to tap into their spiritual center has been able to help them through this time because it's really difficult. Where can people go to stay up to date with what you're doing? I would love it if people would take a look at my website. I'm online at amykennedyforcongress.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we're doing lots of great Facebook Live events with national leaders, including President Obama's former Surgeon General, Vivek Murphy, and a lot of our local frontline workers. So we've been keeping up with everyone on social media. It's really challenging during this time to reach out to voters. So we're doing the best we can through through both social media and phone banking. But I'd love for people to take a look at our policies at amykennedyforcongress.com. Boom. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait for you to come back. Duray, thank you so much for having me on today. I really enjoyed talking with you and I appreciate your time. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. 
Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.